Hi, church family. I'm so glad that we have this ability to connect online. We're about to go into one of our messages and I pray it blesses you. If it does, make sure you share it with a friend and, and share the love around. Make sure that you click like or subscribe so that you don't miss any of our messages that we upload weekly. And jump in the chat so that we can connect. Even though it's virtual, let's make sure that we connect. So sit back, enjoy, and I pray that you're inspired and blessed. Um, today is actually uh, the last day of the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics. Fun fact for you, I don't know, are you following the Olympics? Um, every now and then um, we have turned on the Olympics um, over the last couple of weeks while it's been on. We watch a little bit of sport in our house um, and the only sport that is, is banned and off limits is um, cricket. So, and it's, I know. It's quite tense, isn't it? Um, it's not me. I actually quite enjoy watching cricket, but Nathan has an extreme disliking for cricket. So I know, yeah. You um, you might need to chat to him about it. Um, so yeah, we're not even allowed to watch it. It's quite sad. But what I do love about sport, obviously, uh, is watching athletes. Um, I love that they can do things that um, I cannot do. And uh, I find that inspiring. But it's been interesting watching the Olympics. Obviously, physically, they are fit and, and have incredible physical ability, but their mental and emotional endurance is also just as inspiring. And we have watched quite a few athletes um, really mess up their performance. Um, I know, really unfortunate, because you get, like, only comes around every four years. But... Um, they, they are, like for example, there, there's this like aerial ski jump thing that you have to do, which is really cool. Um, and really, it lasts for about 30 seconds. You have 30 seconds to show what you can do. And um, some of them just really mess up their jump, and, and that's it. It's kind of, Olympics is all over for them. And um, what inspires me is that they get interviewed after by commentators and their response is all very similar. They, they say, well, I'm just, I'm just gonna go back and I'm just gonna train and prepare for Winter Olympics 2026. And um, if, if it were me, I would definitely just give up at that point because <laughs> another four years of training, it's a long time. Yeah. Um, yeah, and they just set a new goal and they just start preparing for whatever is next. And I'm so inspired by that and um, at the end of last year, I, I watched this documentary called um, 14 Peaks, Nothing is Impossible. I don't know if you've seen it. It's, this, it's about this mountaineer who sets out to climb um, the world's like tallest peaks. So 14 peaks that are 8,000 meters high. I think that's right. Is that right? They're really tall anyway. Um, and so he, what is incredible though is that he sets out to do that in seven months. And so that would mean that he is having to climb at least two of those mountains uh, each month. And what's crazy is that sometimes those mountains can take a couple of weeks to climb. You can't just do them um, you know, up and down in a day. So it's this enormous physical toll that it takes on one's body. And so he was having to also do Mount Everest, which we know is the tallest peak in the world. And um, I don't know if you've ever looked into climbing Everest, 
Um, I haven't really, because that doesn't interest me at all. But a few years ago, Nathan was really keen to do uh, Everest Base Camp, um, which obviously I thought was uh, not a very good idea because, yeah, anyways. But on Mount Everest, before you can actually summit, you have to go through what's called the death zone. And so uh, probably partly that name makes me not want to climb Mount Everest. Um, but it is this zone where you, um, well, the altitude is just not sustainable for human life. There's just not enough oxygen. And so they have to actually climb quite quickly. Um, so they can go up and then down um, and make it to um, levels of altitude that um, they, well, they can get oxygen and actually breathe. So in the death zone, though, uh, obviously, if you're not getting enough oxygen, your cells start to die. But there's also just really extreme conditions. So they have to actually climb at night while the sun isn't out because snow melts in the sun. And then there's an extreme risk of avalanches. And so they could just become covered in snow and, and that would um, result in death. And yeah, which is the number one reason I wouldn't want to climb Everest. But I said to Nathan, when I was looking at Everest, um, I said to him the other day, um, how fit do you reckon you have to be to, to climb Everest? And he said something reasonably profound, which um, he probably didn't realize was profound at the time, but he said it's not so much the fitness um, that's required, because a lot of people could actually train for Everest, it's actually the conditions that you can't always prepare for. And so what I wanted to pose to us tonight, the question I wanted to ask, is what do we do when we face mountains in life and we aren't actually prepared for the conditions? Because the very real reality is that we all face mountains in life. It's the journey of life, these metaphorical mountains that we have to actually scale and sometimes we might feel fit enough, but um, we're not always prepared for the conditions. Or we get to a place where the conditions are just too tough or they're um, less than optimal or not sustainable for human life. And um, what, are, what are we meant to do then? And so I've titled my message tonight on the way to the summit. How do we actually scale a mountain and deal with conditions that we're not prepared for? Because we can't prepare for everything in life. And so let's just pray before we get into it and, and we're really gonna unpack the word. Lord, I thank you that your word does not return void, God. I thank you that you speak to hearts, Lord, that you sow seeds in people's hearts. I thank you, Lord, that my words would be of you tonight, Lord, that you would just use me as a vessel to speak to people's souls, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that um, through this message, you would provide breakthrough for people and that you would just minister to their spirits in a way that I couldn't, Lord. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to move in this place and we welcome you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I am going to answer the question for you straight away and then we're going to get into it because it really is quite simple. And, and the answer to the question, what do we do when we're 
facing conditions we're not prepared for? The answer is that we put our absolute trust in God. And it definitely is easier, far easier said than done. Um, And we do this even when the conditions seem unbearable, even when we can't understand, um, and even when we think our circumstances are unfair. We do this no matter what, because it really is the only way, okay? Um, And we're going to go to the book of Job first. Cam leaned across just before and asked me if I was just reading scripture tonight, because uh, there's a lot of scripture. Um, no, I will, I will interject, but we are doing a lot of scripture because the book of Job is really long and you need to make sense of it. So um, Job obviously is a man who faced really harsh conditions, uh, conditions he was not prepared for. And um, he remained faithful to God, though. And, in, and he trusted God. And we don't actually know too much about the book of Job in terms of the context. Um, we don't really know the historical time period or the author or anything like that. Um, but we do know the main point, okay? And the point is that Job raises these questions with God. He feels hard done by, naturally. He raises questions with God, fair questions. And then we have God's response to Job. Okay, and that's really the focus of of the book. It goes back and forth between um, him, his friends, and God's response. Um, We obviously have limited time tonight, so we're not going to read the whole book of Job. So I would encourage you to maybe unpack that in your own time um, if this is a topic that you want to look into. But we're going to go to Job chapter 1, verse 1 to 22 first. This is the longest section, I promise. Um, So it says, it will be on screen as well. There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz, or I have heard it pronounced Uz, whatever, whatever works for you. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen and 500 female donkeys. He also had um, many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in the entire area. Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their homes, and they would also invite their three sisters to celebrate with them. When these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children. He would get up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering for each of them. For Job said to himself, "'Perhaps my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts.'" This was Job's regular practice. So really spiritual guy. Love God, following God. And then um, things start to go wrong for Job. So one day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord. And the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. He answered the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Satan replied to the Lord, Yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You've always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You've made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take everything away. 
um, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, you may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So he left the Lord's presence. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing with donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabaeans raided us, they stole all the animals and killed all the farm hands. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And it keeps getting worse. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. When he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. Suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed and all your children are dead. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground. But in all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. And so it sets up the story for us, the prologue. And things have really just gone from bad to worse for Job. And it just kind of gets worse from here on out. Um, And you can read about that. He's lost everything. He was the richest man. He was blameless, had not sinned, had integrity, done all the right things. And now he's lost everything, including his children. What a terrible grief to have to bear. And then later as we go on, he also um, ends up, you know, covered in sores and things like that and is in physical anguish and um, in complete despair um, that not all of us could really relate to um, and, and probably could not understand. And it's so bad that he ends up cursing the day that he was born. If we go to Job 3, um, verse 1 to 4. At last Job spoke and he cursed the day of his birth. He said, let the day of my birth be erased and the night I was conceived, let that day be turned to darkness. Let it be lost even to God on high and let no light shine on it. So things were so bad for Job that he would have rather not be born. Cursed the day I was born. Don't want to know about it. It's awful. Um, And so... The conditions also get so bad that um, Job's wife even says to him, just curse God already and die. There's no hope for you. And so Job has some friends though. And um, a lot, a large section of, of the book of Job is him going back and forth with, with his friends. His friends hear of his suffering and they travel to see him. And, and what his friends do is they explain that Job must be suffering because of some kind of sin that he's committed. He must have done something wrong to bring this upon himself because they believe that God was just and God was fair and God was good. And so if God is just, then, then for this to be happening, Job must have done something wrong. But the whole time Job maintains his integrity, maintains that he is blameless, he says no, I haven't sinned, and they keep, they keep telling him, you must have done something and encouraging him to repent. He says, I haven't done, I haven't sinned, I'm blameless. Um, but still their conclusion is that, 
that he's suffering because he hasn't repented of something. And this takes place across like three cycles. Job's friends speak, Job responds. Job's friends speak, Job responds. And it keeps going and and then even Job starts to question, well, is God just? How can I make sense of my suffering if God is meant to be just? And Job's friends, they, they mean well. They want to help Job. Um, but can I tell you that sometimes well-meaning people can be unhelpful? And it's super important that, especially when you're suffering, especially when you're going through something, that you seek God's counsel first and that you seek wise counsel. And so Job in the end gets frustrated with his friends, gets sick of listening to them. They're, they're not being of any help. And so um, he takes his case to God. He goes straight to God and he questions God. And it's okay for us to question God because um, suffering is difficult when we go through things that are hard, when we're facing conditions that we weren't prepared for um, and that we don't know how to make sense of when you're trying to sum it, but the conditions are just too hard. Absolutely, it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to take your questions to God. Um, he, he is actually big enough to handle that. Um, but you should know this, and Job works this out, is that you don't always get to know why. You don't always get to know why this happened to you or why you're going through this. And usually those are the answers we're looking for because we're trying to make sense of something. But you don't always get to know why because you're not God. I don't get to know why because I'm not God. And it really is this call to just have absolute trust in Him. And when you have absolute trust in him, you can reconcile that within yourself. The more you get to know God and know his character, the more you trust him. Um, and so Job questions God. He accuses God. He says that God is unjust. And we're going to go to Job 38, verse 1 to 13, because the Lord gives this response to Job. He challenges Job. So it says, The Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such arrogant words? Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. And if God came to me in a whirlwind and that was his opening statement, I would be worried. Okay? Yes, I will answer your questions. <laughs> Where were you, he says, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone? As the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb and as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness? For I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores. I said, this far and no further will you come. Here your proud waves must stop. Have you ever commanded the morning star to, sorry, the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to the night's wickedness? 
And this goes on for, for a little while where there's this just kind of like poetic questioning, God questioning Job about matters of the universe that Job has absolutely no idea about, that Job does not understand. And it's a picture of God's greatness and his magnificence and his ability to be all-knowing. And Job is, is humbled by that. He's forced to acknowledge that, and, and he is humbled by the fact that he is not in any way as big as God. He is not in any way as great as God. And so he accepts that he actually um, doesn't have all the answers, Job himself, and he accepts that it's for God to know. And so um, the fact that God is the creator of the universe and he is all-knowing and all-powerful means that Job can then actually put his absolute trust in God. And then God ends up blessing Job and, and his wealth is restored. Let's go to Job 42. We're going to start at verse 12 um, just for the sake of time. It says, So the Lord blessed Job in the second half of his life, even more than in the beginning. For now he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 teams of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also gave Job seven more sons and three more daughters. In all the land, no women were as lovely as the daughters of Job, and their father put them into his will along with their brothers. Job lived 140 years after that, living to see four generations of his children and grandchildren. Then he died an old man who had lived a long and full life. And so it's this really beautiful story of, of God restoring things. Job walking through trial and suffering and God proving his faithfulness to him. And so in some concluding thoughts, you might ask, and, and this is instantly where my mind goes, what about all that Job lost though? Like yes, you can restore wealth and provision um, but what about his children you can't replace children and it's absolutely a valid question and Job actually never gets an answer he never gets the answer to why he's suffering and sometimes we don't actually ever get the answer sometimes all that we have is the fact that bad things happen in life because we live in a broken and sinful world and sometimes that just has to be enough because my perspective is actually not vast enough to understand God's ways. I am not all-knowing, so I do not have all the answers. I do not have God's perspective. And sometimes we have to just come to a place where we can reconcile that within us. The scriptures are really clear about it. His ways are higher than our ways. Isaiah 55 eight to nine. A lot of scripture tonight. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. And we know that faith is trusting what we don't see, which obviously can be really hard. But that's what it is. It's trusting even when it doesn't make sense, even when you can't see, you don't know what's going on. Hebrews 11, 1 tells us that now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And it's hard when we don't see. But can I assure you <clears throat> that you can actually have assurance about the character of God? 
and that's what you can trust. Job never, he never gets an answer, never learns why he had to suffer, but he trusts God anyway. Because we can actually trust God's wisdom and character. And the only way you can actually develop that is if you get to know him. And the more that I get to know God, the more that I trust him the more that I know his character, the more that I read his word, the more that I walk through things in my life, the more that I walk through trials and, and victories, the more that I know the goodness of God. It's like any relationship. I have a marriage, and so um, the more that I know my spouse, the more that I trust that person, the more that I trust him. And I trust that he would die for me. I hope I didn't overspeak. Hopefully that is actually true. Um, anyways, it's fine. Don't want to put that pressure on you. Um, but honestly, I, I can trust his character. I know that he's for me and not against me. I know that he loves me and has the best intentions for me. That he would not willingly do anything that would hurt me because he loves me. And I know that because I know him, because I've spent time with him, because I've communicated with him. And it's the same for God. Just the same as in relationships with people, it's the same with God. We know that. We know God's character because we spend time with Him. We experience Him. And sometimes that experience only comes through trial, through suffering. I've never known God in a way that I have when I've been suffering, when I've walked a trial. You know, actually, one of my friends um, reminded me of something important yesterday. She said to me, the view from the mountain is really beautiful, and everyone wants to be at the top. Everyone wants the view. But fruit is grown in the valley. And sometimes you actually have to be in the valley to produce fruit in your life, because God is actually always working, always working things together for good in your life. And you can't produce fruit on the mountaintop. It grows in the valley, in those deep moments where you have nothing but to trust in God. Bill Johnson wrote a book called God is Good, one of my favorite books. Um, I would totally encourage you to read it. Incredible um, wisdom of the character of God. But he says, a couple of key quotes there, he says, real faith is superior to human intellect in that it is the product of God's mind instead of ours. My faith can only go where I have understanding of his goodness. In other words, I can only trust to the extent that I have understanding of his goodness. If I don't know God, if I don't understand his goodness, if I've not read about it, it's going to be really difficult for me to trust him. And he also says that you don't get the peace that passes understanding until you give up your right to understand, until you actually come before God and surrender and acknowledge that you don't know his ways and you don't always get to know his ways, but he is still the God of the universe who still sits on the throne and rules over everything, who is in control, who has dominion, who has given you authority, who wants the best for you. That's who he is and that's who you can trust. 
And we don't always get to know what he's doing. But we trust that he's working even when the conditions seem unbearable. Even when the conditions look like they're going to take us out. We trust. That's the posture that we take as Christians. And I know that is so much easier said than done. Absolutely, I acknowledge that. But if I could just encourage your faith for a moment, if I can just speak to your spirit and share some things that I know about Jesus, some things that are written in the Gospels, some things that Jesus has done. If you want to know Jesus, actually, go and read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Word actually became flesh. Jesus dwelt among us, and it's written there for you. He was the manifestation of God. That is the character of God. And so there's um, a miracle that takes place where a father brings his son to Jesus so that he could be healed. His son is demon-possessed. It says that he seizes himself and um, throws, throws himself to the ground, whatever his, um, the evil spirit that he's possessed by. And, and the father in desperation brings the son and asks um, gets the disciples, asks the disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't do it. And so <clears throat> in a last kind of effort, he brings his son to Jesus and he says, um, have mercy on us. Can you help us? Help us if you can. And Jesus responds, what do you mean if I can? Anything is possible for a person who believes. And the father responds, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And so often we can believe. We know the scriptures. We know what Jesus says. But sometimes there's just this war within us. And it's okay to come to God and say, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. I'm struggling with this right now because the conditions seem unbearable and I can't see a way forward and I don't understand why. And that's okay. <clears throat> you can come to God and just like the Father, you can say, help me overcome my unbelief. And you might be here tonight or you might be listening online and you might actually have, have really struggled with something for a really long time. Long suffering is hard, absolutely. But there are countless miracles in the Bible where people have suffered for a long time. There's the woman with the issue of blood. Twelve years she'd been hemorrhaging. Twelve years she had suffered. And what she did was when Jesus was passing through her town, when he was passing by, she reached out and she touched the hem of his garment and the power left him and she was completely healed. And he said, your faith has made you well. All she had to do was reach out and touch him. And there's another miracle, one of my favorite, where there is a man lying by a pool of water who believed that if he could just get to the pool of water at a particular time, he would, he would be healed. He was paralyzed, couldn't walk. And Jesus walks by and <clears throat> 38 years he'd been at the pool. 
38 years is a really long time to be desperately hoping for a miracle. 38 years. It's enough to make someone give up. And Jesus comes in a moment and he says, do you want to get well? And he explains, yeah, I do, but I can't get there in time. People beat me to the pool and and I don't get my chance. He says, stand up, pick up your mat and go. And he leaves completely healed. But you know what was interesting about that miracle is that Jesus performed that miracle on the Sabbath. You're not meant to do things on the Sabbath. Um, The religious leaders believed there should be no, no miracles on the Sabbath, no teaching, no nothing. But Jesus defied that. Do you know why he defied that? Because he saw past the religiosity. He saw the person. Saw the person in need and had compassion on him. He doesn't care about religiosity. Maybe that's gotten in the way of you receiving something from him before.